edition of the Columbia University Sports Podcast, The Cusp Show. I'm Joe Favorito, along with my co-host, Tom Richardson. Tom, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Joe. And I know you're just back from, or at least a few days ago, from L.A. So uh, maybe to start the show, we can uh, get some thoughts from you about what happened with the sports media and technology, or at the sports media technology conference last week. Uh, but how are you doing otherwise? Everything's good. Everything's good. And um, uh, we can get to the SMT, the New Lions Sports Media Technology Conference, in a second. Um, but our topic for today, just so everyone knows, is probably, as Tom, you and I have talked about, the most basic, most important skill anyone can have in the sports or entertainment business, which is the ability to sell. Not to run marathons, as our guest has recently completed the Las Vegas Marathon, but um, to sell. And that's what we're going to kind of get into is entrepreneurship and kind of the business that that, that um, uh, our guest today, Steve DeLay, has been involved with for over a quarter century and has a great partner in uh, for a long time in John Spolster, who many people know, but we'll get to that in a second. But SMT, yeah, SMT in L.A. was um, a day and a half. And it's interesting, as you know, with these things, most of the people make the reason to go what goes on outside of the room versus what goes on mm-hmm. inside of the room. Uh, and every once in a while when you stay for a panel, that there's like five people, and it was actually the last panel of the day and a half. Um, you sit there and I'm like, wow, listen to what these guys are saying, and, and how come nobody is really kind of capturing this? Um, mm-hmm. And it was about um, VR and AR, but more about augmented reality than virtual reality. And one of the things that uh, – you know, Tom, that you pointed out over a month ago, now with Samsung and now with Apple, um, now having the new piece in the camera where you can actually get AR, um, mm-hmm. Mant, uh, Mant Media and a couple of other people were up there talking about <clears throat> where this is going to go uh, in terms of fan engagement. And they actually showed a little snippet of a potential commercial that could be run during the Super Bowl, saying that there will be at least six spots during the Super Bowl, which will prompt you before they go to commercial break to download something, which will lead you to a, an augmented reality experience in your own house. And you mm-hmm. know, they talked about everything from, you know, Drew Brees sitting on your couch, to you know, a special food being served up to a T-Rex, you know, eating your television. Um, so I really found that as interesting as the next, as people were screaming to the top of their lungs about VR, 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 um, and where this was going, where augmented reality kind of now coming in with the new phones that are being sold. Uh, yeah, well, it's obviously being embraced. And ironically, on Saturday, Veterans Day, I was watching a Fox business uh, story, and they had a young entrepreneur on who was a former military guy, who I guess I hadn't realized that, that – um, IKEA actually has an app that you can download and bring a piece of furniture and put it in your house on your phone to see what it looks like before you buy it. So Yeah, I mean, um, that's going to be one of the big use cases, and I think, Joe, what, what, what we're going to witness is uh, going to be really incredible in 2018. There's going to be an avalanche of AR apps, because just remember the timing on this. So the technology was built into iOS 11, which was launched um, two months September. ago, so in September. Yeah. The adoption rate is growing rapidly as more people buy the newer iPhones or those of us with older iPhones upgrade to iOS 11. And I know for a fact, since I work in the mobile space a lot, that there's just a lot of development behind the scenes right now. And everybody in all parts of the business world, particularly it's particularly interesting in retail, as you mentioned, 
uh, also entertainment and venue mm -hmm. operations, and of course sports. But all the creative applications are going to come into the market in 2018. So it's it's going to be a wild ride. But it is funny because, as you said a couple of years ago, all we talked about was VR, and now we're going to see this uh, this more widely available technology, AR, completely overwhelm VR in terms of um, actual applications and use cases in the market. So it's going to be one of the big stories of 2018 for sure. So it's good it's good that you got a glimpse of that last week. Yep. And then uh, the other two who are always entertaining was um, Thomas Tull, now out of Lionsgate, but uh, mm -hmm. stopped by for a half-hour talk about you know what he's working on and where uh, the film business is going to go. And then I thought one of the more intriguing conversations, because he's always engaging, is Sean Bratches talking about what he and Chase Carey are trying to do with Formula One. Right. Other than flying all over the country, I mean, he was on like seven red eyes in 11 days trying to keep up with the business of Formula One. But, you know, they think there's a marketplace in the United States. We're going to see if there's a marketplace in the United States, or at least in North America. Um, but he was as rah-rah a person for, you know, motorsports as anybody I've seen in some time, given kind of the issues that NASCAR has and, you know, obviously the kind of plateau that um, that IndyCar has hit. So, so those were some. Yeah, of and also, I mean, they're they're putting a huge emphasis on digital media and and digital yep. products, as you know, well, which is going to be interesting to watch. Because look, the challenge they've got, like a lot of the properties in in motorsports, but but and it goes beyond motorsports, is how do you make the sports, the viewing of the sports, more appealing and engaging for younger viewers? I mean, this is this is kind of the, the existential challenge of the day. And they've got a really interesting sport um, from which they can develop digital products. So I'm really curious about that one. And with a guy like Sean there, with all his background at ESPN and his knowledge of, uh, of um, different kind of technologies and viewership and things like that, it's going to be good to see what – really interesting to see what they do. Yeah, he, talk, he talked about going into meetings with the drivers and saying, you know, we're going to do a fan fest. And they looked at him like, we're going to what? We're going to do what with who, and what do we want right. people to do? So he said for, for as a billion-dollar industry as Formula One had been, or a multi-multi-million-dollar industry as Formula One had been under Bernie Ecclestone, he talked about them being like in 1980 in terms of embracing you know, the fan experience and technology mm -hmm. and what they could be doing, which was really interesting to hear. So right. anyway. All right. All right, well, let's talk about sales. This is one of my favorite topics in the business, as you know, since I – spent my uh, formative years in my, in my 20s in a sales role in the media business. So <clears throat> I think you and I are in agreement, as you said in the beginning, how this is um, oftentimes an overlooked but very, very important part of the sports business. So we're really happy to have a guest to, to help us think this through and tell us about all the great things he's doing. So do you want to intro, intro Steve? Yep. Steve DeLay is the co-author of The Ultimate Toolkit to Sell the Last Seat in the House, the co-author of The Ultimate Toolkit Sponsorships, and we will get into the owner or co-owner of the Macon Bacon, which is a college woodbat uh, team playing right now in Macon, Georgia, and is really kind of reinventing. Uh, it is not minor league baseball, but is reinventing kind of the fan experience uh, at the grassroots level and kind of the you know the the intimate level where you can really make a difference in baseball. So, Steve, welcome. Oh, thank you. Appreciate it, guys. Great to have you, Joe. You want to kick it off with the first question? Yep. I've got a few sure. on my on my list, but go go ahead. So, Steve, talk a little bit about 
uh, the evolution of sales? Has it changed that much? And when people look at kind of all the distractions that are out there now, what are some of the first things you go in when you're working with an organization uh, to talk about their sales team or what the basics are of, of getting stuff done? We're, we're big on getting stuff done. Yeah, I'm with you. It's like getting stuff done and not getting dazzled by the latest, greatest, coolest uh, technological tool that pops out. It's funny. I started this business uh, years and years ago with uh, John Spolster when he was president of the New Jersey Nets. And what I learned then as a 22-year-old is still very applicable now. You Uh, still have to be able to pick up the phone and call and talk to people. And this day and age, Everybody's dazzled by communicating on social media. Everybody's dazzled by things like LinkedIn, Sales Navigator. But it really all still boils down as your ability to communicate and talk and your ability to write. And I don't care how cool or how great your Twitter account is or how cool or how great your Facebook page is, the bulk of your sales are still going to come through face-to-face interaction uh, or at least phone interaction. So that core fundamental hasn't changed. It, quite frankly, it hasn't changed for hundreds, if not thousands of years, and it probably won't change going forward. But Steve, it's a, it's a great point, and I agree with you 100%, and it's amazing to me how many companies don't acknowledge that and help the young people, especially in the sales and business development functions, actually develop those skills. I think as we We've all seen, those of us that have been managers, uh, well, we've actually been salespeople ourselves, and if we've been managers of salespeople, and in in my case, I've done some recruiting for sales positions and things like that, we know that there are these kind of characteristics, these fundamental traits that typically make good salespeople, but those need to be developed, I I believe, and obviously with the way you've developed the ultimate toolkit, uh, you've brought a methodology to, to that challenge that to me, and I think Joe agrees, is really interesting. So talk about that. Like, When did you see the potential to actually build a kind of a training business around this fundamental skill? Well, I mean, the funny thing that came about, John had written a book years ago called How to Sell the Last Seat in the House. And that was more of a 30,000-foot overview of ticket sales strategy, ticket sales philosophy. And then he and I got together after he had retired uh, from Mandalay and I'd left Mandalay Baseball Properties and said, why don't we write down everything a team should know about ticket sales philosophy and strategy, but then let's dig deeper. Let's give them everything they need to train people on how to call on a business, to train people on how to call on a youth group or a school group, to, and also to train people on how to call on just the guy who happens to like the team. Uh, And uh, quite frankly, at the time, the idea was I didn't want to travel around as a sales trainer, consultant type person. So we figured if we wrote it all down, it would create uh, the fundamental tools that a team would need where they don't need anybody from the outside. And as we rewrote the original How to Sell the Last Seat in the House, we realized how many of those principles are still consistent. And the challenge is, is teams just don't want to put the time and effort necessary to really make those salespeople as effective as possible. They'd rather get caught up in things like dynamic pricing, which is invaluable. But in reality, that might impact a couple million bucks out of a 50 or $70 million ticket revenue stream. Uh, it's like the things that matter are how your, are your salespeople able to deliver. And if they're trained correctly, 
they should pay out four, five, six to one for whatever you pay them as a salary and commission. They should generate substantial return on their investment for you. So, Steve, is it a function of the mindset of the management of the team? So if a team president kind of gets this, they will follow through and make this kind of stuff happen. And on the other hand, if someone, for whatever reason, just doesn't get it and kind of ignores this fundamental issue, then they're kind of they're, they're fated to not be very good at sales. Is that really what it comes down to? It, it really is uh, how much time and energy senior management puts into it. And a lot of times senior management will get fixated on, all right, if we go sign this next great player or we hire this great coach, and this is at the professional level or the collegiate level, we do those little things, all of a sudden everybody's going to buy. But in reality, most of my career, I've spent, you know, I started the New Jersey Nets. We were by far and away one of the worst teams in the NBA. Uh, then I went to work for the LA Kings two months after Wayne Gretzky was traded. So you can imagine how excited people in Los Angeles were about buying Kings tickets. Uh, then I went to the Tampa Bay Lightning for a while, and they were coming off the season where they were 12 and 61. Uh, and then we went to minor league. Then I linked back up with John again, went to minor league baseball. So I was in markets throughout my entire career where you couldn't rely on winning and losing. You couldn't rely on signing that next great coach. You had to do the core fundamental stuff, create ticket products that people wanted to buy, and then train salespeople to go out and talk about those, reach out to the prospects that made sense, explain why there was a value and a need for that prospect, and then ask for the order. And it's kind of interesting this day and age, the 22, 23-year-olds who spends all their time on their phone, uh, they're a little bit nervous and a little bit afraid to do that. But if you can find a kid who's young, fresh out of school, that is able to talk, able to communicate and talk to an adult. I mean, in reality, a 22, 23-year-old, they're selling tickets to a CEO or a president who's probably at least twice her age, probably the same age as their father, and they got to be polished and professional to be successful. They can't just keep their fingers crossed and hope that CEO buys their product because they happen to like the team. In this day and age, how do you teach people skills? Is it innate? Um, you know, there are so many people out there who say, oh, I have relationships. Well, how do you relationship with somebody? Well, I direct message them on Twitter or I send them an email. Or, and, and then you walk into a meeting and, and someone will be sitting there and say, oh, yeah, I know that guy. And I, it's funny, I've never met him before. So how, how much is it still important in the, the face-to-face, um, face-to-face time versus kind of the mass email, mailing, hoping that you, know, you swing at 50 things and you hope you, hope you hit one or two? Well, I think it's huge. I think it's critically important. And you look at, like, LinkedIn. LinkedIn Sales Navigator, a lot of teams and a lot of companies have picked up on that. And, yeah, you can reach out and connect with somebody on LinkedIn. But we all get oodles and oodles of connections for people we don't know. But even if somebody did accept a connection from me on a LinkedIn or a direct message and I want to go see them and explain why they should buy my product, I still have to be able to pick up the phone and talk to them. I still have right. to be able to give them a reason to listen to me and a reason to meet with me. Uh, without that, I'm just an information provider. And you're right. It's like, you know, I could send out thousands of direct mail pieces or thousands of emails, but that's so much clutter these days that doesn't break through anymore. The ability for someone to communicate face-to-face is by far and away the most valuable skill a kid coming out of school can have and also the most underutilized skill I think uh, most of these young people have. So, 
Steve, well, wait a second. Just back to my point a minute ago, so I'm thinking of what, what I went through as a young 20-something in a, in a publishing company in ad sales and the training we got. And that was, I think what they were doing was hiring young people who didn't necessarily have sales experience but had the right, to use the recruiter parlance, the right characteristics with the understanding that they were going to teach the competency. Is that kind of the essence of what you're trying to do in the training you have where you, you're identifying the kind of the raw talent and then figuring out ways to unlock it and develop it to dedicated training? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, part of what we always did with the teams I worked with uh, and now uh, even our team in Macon is I don't want to hire people who have ticket sales experience or even any general sales experience because I don't want to break habits that I may not like or that may be perceived as bad habits. I'd rather bring the kid out of school or hire somebody off the street who I can tell has great work ethic. Uh, and you can kind of really tell, especially with a young person on their work ethic, how much did they, did they work while they were in school? Did they have other activities? Did they still get good grades? Did, were they involved in other projects that took time and effort and energy and still were able to manage their time? Uh, and then I always challenge them with their desire to get smarter, better, and greater. One of the questions mm -hmm. I'll ask a young person at an interview is, what's the last book you read? And what was the one thing you, that struck you most out of that book that you've applied to your everyday life? And you'll find the kid who, uh, one of all, someone will have a deer in the headlights and be shocked and have no answer, but the kid who says, oh, I read book X, and here's what I really liked about it, it could be anything. It could be a fiction book, could be a business book, could be a book on you know, self-help or how to cook something. Uh, but if they've read it, absorbed it, and then used it, that shows you that they're really interested in improving and getting better. If I can find a kid with work ethic and a desire to improve and constantly get better, I've got somebody that I can teach. How hard is it to find those kids these days? Uh, you probably interview 50 people and find one. That's wow. the challenge. Wow. Is wow. There, there's, especially in the sports world, there's tons of people want to get into the sports world. But you, you, we've all been in the sports world for a long time, and everybody said, oh, geez, I love sports. I want to get into it. All right, well, here's the criteria I'm looking for. Prove to me that you have those. And rarely do you find somebody uh, that really hits the numbers or hits the metrics you want. What, what a aspect of those characteristics or aspects of those characteristics are missing? What, what are the 49 people who get rejected missing? It's usually the ability to communicate. It's when you ask them a question, and I kind of always put myself in a position where if I'm a prospect, um, they're pitching me, and if I ask them a question or give them an objection, how quickly do they respond? And you'll know real fast if they can think on their feet as a salesperson, the most valuable skill and the most valuable trait you have is can you think on your feet if the guy you're talking to that you want him to buy something throws you an objection or do you just stumble around and fumble uh, with a whole bunch of ums and ahs? If I can ask some challenging pointed questions and get a good response, person's golden. Most of the time, though, that's where they stumble around and kind of look off into the distance and have that glazed look in their eyes. Yeah, that's interesting. When, we, when I was young, Steve, we, part of the training was – called objection handling, and we'd go into the training room or the conference room, and each of us would be, giving a bunch, a bunch of, be given a bunch of index cards, which were face down, uh, the writing was face down. The trainer would point to one of us and say, turn over the card. 
it would be an objection related to the magazine that we were publishing, some, some reason why they didn't want to advertise, and we had to, as they say, stand and deliver the answer. It was absolutely yeah. terrifying, but it was an incredibly valuable experience because it, it all comes down to that one moment, the sales call, where there's, where there's an objection, and you really gotta have to know how to handle it. So I think you raise a good point, and Joe, this is something that we've talked about repeatedly within the context of our program at Columbia, which is this facility around the subject matter, this ability to communicate well, obviously, but also use the right kind of language, use the, the right kind of tone, use the right kind of inflection, and just have that capacity to engage, because the longer you can engage, especially if you do it intelligently, mm-hmm. the better chance you have of advancing the conversation. Yeah, sure. And I'll tell you, one of the things we've implemented in all of our training for years is the video camera. The video camera mm-hmm. does not lie. And right. my analogy always is, like, you know, if you're a golfer and your golf instructor videotapes your swing, instead of him telling you what you do wrong, now when you see it, it's like the light bulb goes off. It's the, oh, I get it. If you're a basketball player, you videotape your free throw shooting form. If you're a baseball player, you videotape your swing. Everybody does it. Why don't we do that in sales? And you're right. Talk about being terrified. When you break out the video camera to somebody who's not well prepared, they're scared to death because they know they're going to be undressed in front of at least their boss, if not their peers, and nobody wants to be in that position. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about selling uh the thing that you're selling probably the most now, I guess, um, the make and bacon, um, how you and John Spolstra came to own this team, how it has done, and what is it that you guys think from a sales, a business, and a fan standpoint that um, this league has kind of been transformative for you? And explain to everybody about the league exactly as well. Sure. It's, summer, it's called summer collegiate baseball. Basically what it is is the way baseball works, if somebody can get drafted out after the age of 18 – and sign a pro contract and go play pro baseball. They end up going to rookie ball or single-A baseball, usually be there for two or three years. If they choose not to sign a pro contract and go play in college, then they'll need somewhere to play during the summers, but you can't get drafted again until after you're 21. So those three years after, uh, in between, they need somewhere to play in the summer, hence the kind of the advent of summer collegiate baseball for the most talented players in college to play against other great competition. So there's about 300 summer collegiate teams around the country, but there's really only three leagues that are really at the top uh, echelon. The Cape Cod League, everybody's familiar with. They've had movies done after them. That's usually where the top talent goes. When the Cape Cod League, though, from a business perspective, I've never been to a game before, and I understand, like 50 people go to the games. They play at high school fields. And there's you no, there's no selling. Field. Everything is free. Yeah, exactly. Everybody just It's like family and friends show up to watch uh, the kids play. Yep. In the Northwoods League, which is Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, uh, they do real well there. In fact, the best team in uh, the highest attended team in the country is in Madison, Wisconsin. They average about 6,000 people a game. Wow. Uh, and then the third league is the Coastal Plain League, which is what we're in. Uh, we got involved a couple of years ago with a franchise in Savannah, Georgia. It was a guy that helped uh, – a few years ago uh, with a, another team he had, he called up and said, hey, can you help me launch this expansion team in Savannah? Now, Savannah had had an affiliated team for years and years and years, and it left at the end of 2015. The owner of that team said, I can't play here. The stadium's too old. It's about 80 years old. 
we can't survive here. We aren't going to make it. So they left town and moved to Columbia, Georgia, or Columbia, South Carolina. Then we brought in a Coastal Plain League team, same uh, ballpark, same setup. John Spolster and I were minority partners with the team, and we ended up launching, doing a lot of the same fundamental stuff we'd done in all the other places we'd been. We hired ticket salespeople. We actually had four of them. Most teams in summer collegiate baseball are lucky if they have two or three full-time employees. We had four solely focused on tickets. Ultimately, in our first year, we had a staff of, I think, 10 or 11. Uh, we sold 18 out of the 25 games out, averaged 3,600 people a game. The previous wow. affiliated team had averaged like 1,800, so we doubled their attendance. So that was in 2016. 2017 came about. Uh, we really ramped it up. Same deal, had four salespeople. And, and from a product standpoint, it wasn't just ticket sales or season ticket sales. It was We did some season ticket sales, but most of it was smaller ticket packages, uh, we had introduced a five-game all-you-can-eat ticket package, so it was 75 bucks for a five-game plan, 15 bucks a game. You got unlimited hot dogs, hamburgers, chicken sandwiches, water, soda, dessert, great fan value. We sold 2,000 of them. Wow. We also did the same deal for group sales, where if you bought a group of 20 or more, a uh, school group, a church group, for 15 bucks, you get unlimited food and drink. So now all of a sudden it became a cool family night out, good value, uh, and in that second year, we sold every single ticket to every single game. We averaged over 4,100 people a game uh, and sold everything out. We'd, at this point, at the end of the 2017 season, the team had sold out 33 straight home games, which was un- it's unheard of in that league. So we got, since we got involved there, that led us to looking at how can we do this somewhere else with the same model. And Macon, Georgia had a stadium that was 88 years old, Hadn't been used in about 15 years, really. The Macon Braves used to play there. They moved to Rome, uh, Georgia. It's a great history. Pete Rose had played there. Uh, Hank Aaron had played there. Uh, Tony Perez had played there. Chipper Jones had played there. Stadium just kind of fallen in disrepair. So we got together with the city and said, hey, if you can fix this thing up, we'll bring a team here. And we'll bring the same business model, same philosophy we brought to Savannah. And John and I had brought to all of our Mandalay teams. Uh, and we'll get after it. And the city worked it out, so it's going to be a $2.5 million improvement project. And same thing, we've got five full-time ticket salespeople. We'll have 10 or 11 full-time staff members. But again, it boils down to, yeah, I could send out emails or I could post things on social media, but those ticket salespeople are the ones who are going to pay off four to five to one, even at $15 a ticket. And we're looking forward to the team starts playing June of 2018 uh, with that improved stadium. Uh, and we're already almost halfway to the metrics we had set up for our goals for the year. And my guess is that the, the cost structure on a team, a collegiate wood bat team is certainly not at the price level of what even the lowest affiliated teams or even probably independent teams are. I would imagine that the, uh, you know, it's set up, well, you're not paying the players, correct? Correct. Yeah, they're college players, so they can't right. be paid. They lose their eligibility. So, so yeah. it's it's really kind of interesting to look at this as everyone is screaming minor league baseball, minor league hockey, where there's you know huge barriers to entry and huge costs to get in as a league that makes sense. Now, the the other question I would have along these lines is: Have other teams now looked at you and said, "Hey, they're doing this. Why aren't we doing this? Or we should do it?" And, and has there been a bump across the league, or is it just kind of an anomaly that? you guys see this as the value and other people don't? 
Um, well, to answer your first question, you're absolutely right. When uh, John and I were involved with Mandalay Baseball Properties, uh, when we got involved in the late 90s, early 2000, you could buy a single-way baseball team for 4 or $5 million. I think that's what we bought the team in Rockford for and moved it to Dayton. Ultimately, when Mandalay dissolved and sold off all the franchises, the Dayton franchise sold for upwards of almost $40 million. So it was hugely successful financially for ownership. Uh, obviously made good money along the way, but that brought every other minor league baseball team along for the ride. So I think right. you probably could buy a single-A team now for maybe $12, 15000000 million, and you're right, the barrier to the entry is pretty significant. In summer collegiate baseball, you can create the exact same atmosphere, uh, the exact same environment, fun family entertainment, <laughs> at dramatically lower prices, and I'm a big believer that this is the next frontier because it's a lot easier to get in in terms of price, but you can deliver the same fan experience, and quite frankly, done correctly, it can be imminently profitable. And, you know, the teams in our league, in the Coastal Plain League, have seen what we were able to do in Savannah, and they absolutely started asking questions. Uh, They come down and visited, start looking around. Now, they haven't taken the plunge and hired three, four, five salespeople like they should. Uh, That's a little nervous for some people. But if we can deliver in Macon the exact same type of experiences that were delivered in Savannah, I think that'll make a lot more people in our league and around the country stand up and take notice of summer collegiate baseball. Hmm. So, Steve, can I go back to a more um, macro issue? I'm curious to get your thoughts on how all the advances of tech-driven applications and the disruption around those applications have affected the overall ticketing business. So you mentioned dynamic pricing. We've got variable pricing, mobile ticketing, um, real-time stuff, seat upgrades, et cetera. So all the businesses like StubHub and SeatGeek and GameTime and ShoeWin, how is that changing what you uh, the, the way you approach the effort being made at the kind of the grassroots level with this, with, the, with those phone calls, with that hand-to-hand combat that you're teaching everybody? Well, the good thing in minor league baseball, or even in summer collegiate baseball, a lot of that technology hasn't quite gotten there yet. It's not that big of a deal. Mm-hmm. In the major professional leagues, when you look at things like StubHub and the, the dramatic increase in the number of ticket brokers who buy thousands of tickets, it's a challenge for an NBA team or an NHL team or Major League Baseball team where they can say, geez, let me grab the money now from that broker? Or do you stop and say, geez, that's not a dance I want to go to. That's not somebody I want to get involved with because ultimately it could really, really hurt me in terms of how many extra tickets are on the market. There was an NBA team a few years ago. I remember talking to them. Uh, and they launched a new building, and they said, yeah, we did great. We sold thousands upon thousands of season tickets. Two years later, I was talking to their head of sales, and he said, I have a problem. I'm basic. My sales staff is competing with two other sales staffs. I said, what do you mean? He said, number one, I'm competing with all the brokers we sold to because now our team's not nearly as good, and all those tickets are on the market for way less than what we'd like to get them for or sell new people. And he said, number two, because we only sold season tickets, all of our season ticket holders share and they're all out in the market now because we're not as cool. Those share partners are starting to drop off. So all of our existing season ticket holders want to keep them. They're in the market looking for other share partners. So we're running into problems trying to find new people to buy our tickets. So one of the things I've always been a big proponent of is, and this is going to sound simple and 
almost silly uh, basic, but it's sell the customer the product that's right for them. Yes, it'd be great to sell everybody season tickets, but instead of bribing or cajoling or dragging them into season tickets, kicking and screaming, then keeping your fingers crossed that they use them, if season tickets aren't right for a customer, sell them a 10-game plan, sell them a half-season plan, sell them a group outing. Don't get caught up and fixated on the product that somebody buys because then you, all of a sudden you see StubHub getting all these tickets on their uh, site for $5, $10, and that makes it next to impossible to sell anybody anything new. Same deal with like the upgrade stuff. If you sell somebody a $15 seat in the upper level and you get them the, give them the ability to upgrade to a $50 seat in the lower level and they only pay five more dollars, yeah, you got five bucks. But now you've got somebody who paid 50 sitting next to somebody who basically paid 20. I think the guy who paid 50 is going to feel. It's yep. all a dangerous, slippery slope for these teams to go down. There, there's been a lot of talk recently. Um, heard Bernie Mullen talk about it. Some other people talking about how the season ticket is really kind of a thing of the past. Um, and it's, you know, kind of what you've talked about is kind of micromanaging those plans down to the people for what they want and where they want to sit and when they want to go. How much does, in addition to the season tickets, what other areas of sales have kind of seen too much or, or, or have to change? Is it merch? Is it food? Uh, especially at the level that you're at, not at, you know, the City Field, MetLife Stadium, Mercedes-Benz Stadium, where, you know, so much is going to be high-end. But when you get down to, you know, the real fan experience, the grassroots level or the lower level, how much has changed and what hasn't changed in the in the last uh you know, 25 years. Well, I think the one thing that's changed that we learned a lot all the way back to when we were at Mandalay is it's a value proposition for people. And I don't mean discount. Discount to me is a four-letter word. So a lot of these teams go out and say, uh, you know, a $5 ticket gets you in and buy it. All you're doing then is training people to buy at a massive discount. And you look around the, in, uh, the world, really, at any retail, retailers, a lot of other industries, if they get fall down that slippery slope of, sale, 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 discount, 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 eventually those businesses fail. And it's not just a sports team, but it's everybody. But with the value proposition, I think the direction we've gone in when we were at Mandalay Baseball Properties and what we're doing now in summer collegiate baseball is add value. You know, and you buy a five-game plan and get all you can eat, it's 15 bucks a ticket. Literally, people looked at us and said, how do you make any money off that? We said, don't worry about that. Come on out, buy the five-game plan, eat and drink to your heart's delight. And ultimately, the funny thing is what happens is because they've walked into the building and they don't have to reach in their pocket and pay for that first hot dog and that first soda and that first uh, thing of popcorn, they'll still reach into their pocket and pay for beer, pay for cotton candy, pay for Dippin' Dots, pay for all the other things you have there. So like our, everybody screams and yells about things like concessions per caps. Our concessions per caps in our markets were fabulous because wow. it was a value proposition that we went for instead of discount the heck out of everything. Steve, at some point you decided to expand into sponsorship sales training as well, correct? Correct. Yeah, so what was the motivation to do that? Were you seeing uh, analogous challenges that you thought you could share with your clients? Yeah, well, one of the things that happened to us when we did the ultimate toolkit to sell the last seat in the house, that was wildly popular, wildly successful. And obviously, uh, John's background and career was, you know, selling out every ticket to the Trailblazer games, ramping up what we did in New Jersey. And then, you know, even at Mandalay, our team in Dayton, Ohio, still has the professional sports sellout streak. It's ongoing at like 1,400 a game. But 
everybody then started asking us about sponsorships because they knew what uh, we had done uh, in the Dayton Dragons, Frisco Rough Riders. We were charging $200,000 for founding partnerships in Dayton, Ohio. We were charging $295,000 for founding partnerships in Frisco, Texas. And people started asking, geez, you've helped us tremendously in tickets. Can you also help us in sponsorships? So there, that was the sponsorship toolkit is a little more philosophical and strategic and a little less on the training side. There's a training component that talks about how to present these products and these sponsorship packages to really maximize your revenue. But a lot of times with a sponsorship salesperson, you're going to get someone who's a little more seasoned, a little more uh, veteran experience. It, we figured and we learned really quick, if we gave them the right packages and the right strategy to build those packages and then taught them enough about how to sell it that they could go out and be imminently successful. But it ultimately evolved because everybody saw what we had done with the Dayton Dragons, Frisco Rough Riders, Winston-Salem Dash, all the other teams we had at Mandalay, and they raised their hand and said, help me there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, be- before we get to our, our final questions, we'd like to ask uh, our guests when they come on. Uh, I just had one other thing. is When you guys look out now in the, the sponsorship and sales landscape with a glass half full, who are some of the teams that you look at, not just in the United States, maybe across North America, maybe around the world, who you say, man, their fan experience is what everybody else should have? Are there two or three teams that you look at and say, you know, these guys have now set the gold standard, uh, and what sets them apart from everybody else? Well, the funny thing is, at this day and age, even though I own a sports team and I've been in the sports industry for 25 years, I actually don't spend a lot of time going, going to other sporting events. I living, living here in Las Vegas, one of the things the Golden Knights have been able to do is they've sold a ton of tickets. Uh, they're sold out every game so far, but they aren't sitting on their laurels. They aren't sitting back and going, okay, great, everybody's here. They're all diehard hockey fans. They've made it engaging. They've made it entertaining. Uh, to get people involved, and maybe there's a little bit of education of people living in the desert don't know enough about hockey, uh, but they've made a real concerted effort to make sure that everything's done correctly, that the fan experience is great, the customer service is great, uh, you know, the ushers and ticket takers are well trained, and that's really, I think, what it boils down to is from it's, it's not technological information, but it's like, are the people that work for you, the ushers, the ticket takers, the security guards, the concessions workers, are they friendly? Are they looking to make sure you have a great fan experience? And we've all got experiences with bad customer service, uh, whether you're calling your telephone company or your cable company or um, somebody else. But if you really go through the process and train people on the service aspect and engaging with fans, I think that's hugely valuable. The Golden Knights have done a great job of it. Um, that's probably the one that jumps out at most because that's the most mm-hmm. recent game I've been to, and I was impressed with their experience. There's been a couple of minor league baseball teams I've gone to. Uh, the Hillsborough Hops, believe it or not, it's a short season team up in the west side of Portland. I thought their fan experience was fantastic, sitting outside, having a beer, uh, enjoying the game, and everybody's friendly, and uh, the weather's great. Little stuff like that matters a lot. Great. Um, so, so two of the questions, I'll take one, and then Tom can hit you with the other one, is what are uh, – who do you, you follow and who do you read about to stay current on everything that's going on? Um, some of the guys I follow, uh, Peter Goober, former or, you know, CEO of Mandalay Baseball Properties, 
Uh, I'll, I'll follow him on Twitter pretty regularly, uh, read his columns that he posts on Inc., uh, because I think he's now got his fingers way deep into the sports industry between the Warriors, the Dodgers, now with LAFC uh, doing what he's doing. I think Major League Soccer as a whole is really going to be uh, taking off. I think that's a sport that has a limited time frame. Uh, you know, it's two hours. Uh, and it's a it's a matter of educating the uh, North American marketplace about why soccer is cool. Merritt Paulson with the Timbers is another guy I'll follow on Twitter because I think he does a great job from an owner's perspective engaging his fans, communicating what's going on, telling about his personal feelings, opinions, how he felt about last night's game, stuff like that. Um, and that really matters and in, in, uh, connects with people because social media is supposed to be about communication and engagement with people. It's not necessarily about selling stuff. So right. guys like Merritt, Peter, they do a terrific job of engaging with people uh, more than just trying to sell the next book or trying to sell the next sponsorship or sell the next ticket. That's good stuff. Um, and then as our final question, Steve, we, uh, we, you, you may know that we've got a lot of young people listening, students uh, from our program and alumni from our program um, young aspirants in the sports business, maybe working early stage in their careers, what advice can you offer them? I mean, you, you obviously shared a bunch of good advice at the beginning of this conversation, but um, any more um, significant advice that you'd like to share with everybody? Yeah, I, th I think it's really important for a young person, whether they're just starting out or if they're early in their career, think about the people they will go to work for. I got really lucky in my career. I, even when I was in college, I was working for Buffy Philippel, uh Teamwork Consulting years ago. Uh, then I got to go work for John Spolstra at the Nets. And I got to work for Tim Laiwicki at the Kings. Then I got to work for Tom Wilson uh, at the Lightning. So I had some really talented, skilled people. And you can always pick and choose from each person what they're, the parts that they're really good at. And ultimately, I got a chance to build and learn from a whole bunch of different people. And there's two pieces of advice I always give every, every time I speak to a college class uh, or uh, with young people, two questions that I tell them to ask in every job interview. Because in my mind, the, the candidate is, should be essentially interviewing the potential uh, employer as much as the employer is interviewing the candidate. So the two questions I always tell young people to ask are, one, who's worked for you? in your career or at this, uh, within this organization that's gone on to bigger and better things in the sports industry, and how did you help them do that? So that way you find the sales, young person finds out really fast, does that executive care about me as an individual, and has he have, does he have a track record for helping people grow their career? Uh, like in our case, uh, one of the things John was famous for back when he was at the Blazers, a lot of guys at the Blazers went on to great stuff. When I was at the New Jersey Nets, we had guys like Scott O'Neill, Kevin Mortison, myself, Howard Newchow. I mean, there's some pretty powerful executives in sports there between Scott and Howie uh, that John helped grow, build, and develop. Same thing at Mandalay. We've got guys, uh, got chief revenue officers in the N uh, NFL, NBA. That's something I take great pride in. Did we help develop those people? The second question I always tell them to ask, especially if they're interviewing for a ticket sales job, is tell me about my initial training and my ongoing training that I'll receive from you guys. And make sure that they give you details. Because a lot of times a team will hire a young salesperson and put them through a couple days of training and say, good luck, you're off to the races, figure it out, we'll talk to you again in six months. 
if there's no ongoing training, coaching, and guiding, then that team doesn't really care that much about your best interest. They don't care that much about your growth and development. And if you don't like what you hear, don't just grab the job because it's the job. Grab the job because you like what you can learn and grow and develop into as a stepping stone for your career. Great. Um, So the last two mini questions, number one is, how did you do in the Las Vegas Marathon, which you ran uh, recently? Uh, And then second of all, how do people find you on social media and where can they pick up the books that you and John have worked on? Sure. Uh, the marathon, this was my third marathon. This one was a bit of a struggle. In fact, uh, um, I'm hobbling around a little bit still from that. Uh, and the good thing is I finished and I said, you know, I'm not going to worry about, geez, I want to do that again. Because right now I don't feel like I want to do that again. So hopefully it'll take me, take me a few years to recover from this one. Uh, but it was a good challenge. I, I started it because it was, hey, let's have a physical, mental challenge. Can you complete it? Can you be successful? And I completed it. Success is a relative term. Um, secondly, like, if anybody wanted to call me or reach out to me, uh, real simple, my email address is stevedelay at earthlink.net. You can follow me on Twitter at stevedelay2, uh, the number two. Uh, and our toolkit books are real easy website, uh, www.theultimatetoolkit.com. Uh, so feel free to email me, shoot me a direct message on Twitter, uh, or check out our website. And uh, my phone number is there on the website also, so uh, call me anytime. Cool. Steve, thanks for joining well, us once again. Terrific. Okay, Tom. Sorry? Yeah, thank you. I was just going to say that, that, was, that, that last section about the career advice was, was really excellent, Steve. So yeah. thank you uh, both, both for that specifically and also all the great information about the things you're working on. It was really terrific. Yep. Great. Well, I appreciate you guys having me on. It's been fun. Yeah, so once again, this was uh, Steve DeLay, co-author of The Ultimate Toolkit to Sell the Last Seat in the House and The Ultimate Toolkit Sponsorships. Longtime sports marketer with uh, another big name in the industry, John Spolstra, now both owning the Macon Bacon. Uh, Steve, once again, thanks for joining us, and uh, we'll see everyone down the road as we come back for the next edition of The Cusp Show. Tom, thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Cusp Show, the Columbia University Sports Podcast. I'm Tom Richardson, and my co-host is Joe Favorito. And our production assistant this week is Columbia student Maurice Eisenman. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple's podcast app, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other key platforms. You can also find it at blogtalkradio.com forward slash The Cusp Show. And you can get in touch with us on Twitter at C-U underscore S-P-S underscore sports. Also, you can find out more about our program, the Columbia University Sports Management Program, by going online at sps.columbia.edu forward slash sports hyphen management. Thank you very much. We'll see you next time.